Hey everyone, welcome to episode 9 of the Arti Anglais podcast, the podcast where we talk about art, culture and society to help you learn English naturally. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, make sure you subscribe on whichever platform you listen to so you know each time a new episode is released. Hey everyone, and welcome back to episode 9 of the Arti Anglais podcast. I can't quite believe I'm almost at number 10, and I think for number 10, I'm going to celebrate, and I'm going to celebrate by making a podcast all about Australia. What I want to do is make a list of my 15 recommendations for places that you should visit in Australia. And these places will be culturally interesting or artistically interesting or just some really beautiful places around Australia that I will recommend to you. So how are you going anyway? Are you on holidays, on vacation? Is it summer or is it winter where you are? If it's winter, I'm sorry to rub it in, but I'm enjoying quite a lovely summer here in Montpellier. So what I want to explain to you is that first expression I've just used, rub it in. This is an excellent little expression that, well, a lot of Australians like to use this expression. And we like to use it when we mean to make someone jealous. And it's just for a bit of fun. So for example, I might say to all my friends who are working inside on a really nice day, I have the day off, so I'm going to the beach. And then my friends might say back to me, don't rub it in because they're jealous that I'm going to the beach. So why don't you try and use that expression, but maybe don't use that when you're talking to someone at work, for example. So yes, as I was saying, thankfully it's summer here in Montpellier and I'm about to go on holidays to Portugal. So I'm feeling excited to be having a break and spending some time on the beach in Portugal. I think I'm fortunate though because I already live very close to the beach here in Montpellier. So it makes me feel like I'm always on holidays. And when I go to the beach, I've been reading plenty, which has been relaxing and also really good for my brain. So the last time I went to the beach... I started reading The Little Prince in French. I know, right, it took me long enough, but finally I decided to do it thanks to some encouragement from my French teacher. And so far, I'm finding the story to be extremely relevant to all the things I like. And I'm wondering why it took me so long to start reading it in the first place. Sometimes I think these things only happen when we are ready. I also started listening to many more podcasts in French. Uh, the first one I started to listen to is called Change Ma Vie, which is a podcast about personal development and staying motivated. I like listening to these sorts of things, and I especially love it when I feel I might be in a situation that is out of my comfort zone and I need to challenge my emotional brain. So as you may already know, I'm living in the south of France and I'm learning French. And for someone who has only just started speaking French, that can sometimes be a daily challenge. 
And I'm not ashamed to say that living in another country and learning an entirely new language can sometimes have its challenging points. It's not, it doesn't mean it's bad. It just means that sometimes I appreciate the extra emotional challenge that the podcast will offer me. So I decided to start listening to this podcast in French. Host of the show, Clotilde, also recommends an English podcast called The Life Coach School. And this is made by Brooke Castillo. And it's what I wanted to tell you about and to share with you. It's a podcast which has influenced Clotilde's life and her podcast content. So if you feel like doing the same thing in English, I recommend listening to The Life Coach School. Brooke speaks in a super positive and energetic way and I find both the podcast, the English and the French one, to be excellent compliments for each other. So Brooke is American too, so she speaks with a lot, a lot of energy and so you may appreciate the energy in this podcast. As I often say in the other podcast episodes, I've found that listening to podcasts myself has helped me keep a maximum contact with learning French. And you can do the same where you want and for however long you want. And you can always listen to an episode for short periods over a few days or even in the same day. I often use them right before I'm going to meet with some French friends or speak with my French teacher or my conversation partners because... It helps to wake up my brain and help me think more in French. So you could do the same in English. I'll put the links in today's episode notes, along with a link to some of my recommended shows in English that you could listen to as a podcast. And these podcasts are good because they're not all just made for learning English. Some of them are made to learn English in a natural way where you're learning interesting things about culture and society. Anyway, back to talking about reading. The thing I've enjoyed most while lying on the beach has been reading the book, in English of course, There Is No F in Art by Eli Castelli. So this is what I've decided to share with you today. I had the chance to chat with Eli a few weeks ago and it certainly was a very fruitful conversation. And by a fruitful conversation, I mean I learned more than I imagined, and I really enjoyed our chat. So before we start, I've taken a photo of the front cover of the book, along with some of my art tools and equipment, and I want you to look at the picture of the front cover of the book and tell me what you think of the cover. What do you notice? What do you see in the title of the book also? I tried to make a picture so it was a little bit conceptual using some of my art equipment next to the book. So we'll talk about the cover of the book a little bit later in the show. And I'm thrilled that I contacted Eli because when I asked him about his book and I interviewed him. I learned so much about the art world and conceptual art 
And I was also really lucky because he sent me a signed copy of his book. So thank you, Eli. I'm glad I now have a signed copy of your book. So what is it all about? There is no F in art. Well, it's an interesting book, and I mean that in a really good way. It's not your typical art appreciation book. If you've been listening to the podcast from the start, remember back to episode four, where I talked about what makes something art. Well, this book explores that very idea. If you haven't listened to this episode yet, I recommend also listening to it. I think they complement each other really well. Okay, before I go on, actually, I'm going to explain something. I've just realized I've used a word that I think might need an explanation. In English, we have two words, complement and complement. And as you can hear, they have the same pronunciation, but you spell them slightly differently. So complement with an E, C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T, means when two things go well together. For example, the color red is an excellent complement to blue. And the other word complement, which is spelt with an I, C-O-M-P-L-I-M-E-N-T, is used to say when you say something lovely to someone. For example, if you tell someone they look beautiful, you're paying them a compliment. You're complimenting them. Now, the word compliment and compliment are both quite high vocabulary words. However, I wanted to point them out because I use them very often when I describe art. I very often will use it to explain how two things work well together. So for example, that t-shirt that that girl is wearing, the blue t-shirt, really complements her eyes. So I very often use it in art. Anyway, back to the book. Uh, The author, Eli, starts by asking, what is art? And as we already discussed in episode four, I think the definition of what makes something art is different for everyone. Eli believes that art is something that gives you a feeling and that feeling will be different for everyone. Like me, he also believes that art should be accessible to everyone. It should be available to everyone, which is precisely why I make this podcast. I think it's interesting to learn a language while also learning new things about art and culture at the same time, even if you're not an artist or someone who is an expert in art. And in the book, there are a series of different quotes and statements made by artists. These quotes help you to think about what they are trying to tell you, what they are trying to tell us. At the end of the show notes for today's episode, I'm going to include some of them and I invite you to find out who said them and what they might mean by Googling them. My favorite quote from the book is one that was said by Edward Hopper. And he says, if you can say it in words, you wouldn't need to paint it. If you can say it in words, you wouldn't need to paint it. I always think about this quote when I'm doing urban sketching. Very often I feel like the way I paint a place is unique to my feelings and my thoughts. 
So I try to capture a place differently in a picture, in a painting, to the way I would catch it in a photo. And this is my own personal interpretation. This is the way I see it and how no one else in the world sees it. And I think that's a very special way of looking at painting. So that's why I like the first quote. And my second favorite quote from the book is the one on the back of the book, which was said by Banksy. And I think this was a very smart way, a very clever way to represent possibly one of the most famous Banksy quotes of all time. So I've put a picture of the back of There Is No F in Art in the show notes. So see if you can find the quote on the back of the book made by Banksy. Then follow my link to my Pinterest page in the show notes and see if you can find which Banksy quote it is. That will be a little interesting task for you to do before you listen to the interview. So the book is full of useful information, including different artists and art movements, vocabulary for the art world, and different examples of art also. I particularly enjoyed reading about Marcel Duchamp, who is considered one of the most influential artists of all time. So if you're French, you may already be very well aware of him. His fame has always been quite an interesting concept to me and very controversial to many others also. And it's very interesting, especially if you know his most famous artwork, which was actually a practical joke, but has since become a legend. It's entitled Fountain 1917. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I suggest you follow the link in the show notes. According to Marcel Duchamp, art's value depends on its ability to transform the way we see. And the Fountain 1917 does just that. Eli will talk about it a little later in the interview. So the book specifically talks about conceptual art and the Tate Modern in London defines this as art where the idea or concept behind the work is more important than the finished art object. It started as an art movement in the 1960s and the term usually refers to art made from the mid-1960s to the mid-1970s. I think conceptual art still exists today, but it's art that follows that, that concept that was created in the 1960s. So conceptual art can be or can look like anything. So conceptual artists use whatever materials and whatever form is most appropriate to put their idea across. So this could be anything from a performance to a written description to a sculpture or to items arranged in a specific way. And the reason I loved the book so much is it made me think a lot about how I feel about conceptual art compared to artists who paint, for example. And I believe anything that makes you think more is worth reading about, which is why I think you should read this book. You'll finish it with more questions than you had to start with. Even the pictures are enough to start to provoke you into thinking what makes art successful and what does this mean. 
In the interview with Eli, we certainly talked about conceptual art, but we also talked about how things are changing in the art world in galleries, street art and graffiti, social media, and how artists today provoke their audience. A lot of what we talk about also complements the interview I had with Seb Duke from The Big in the Small in episode 7. So in the interview, Eli and I talked about why he wrote the book and all about the book cover, his trips to the Tate Modern in London, why he thinks art should be for everyone, and of course we talk lots about artists and how clever they are and how they provoke their audiences. And some of the artists and places you'll hear him and myself talk about include the Tate Modern in London, Urban Nation in Berlin, Marcel Duchamp, Michelangelo and the Sistine Chapel, Banksy, the street artist, and in particular we talk a little about the Shredder incident. Charles Saatchi, Jeff Koons, Damien Hurst and Jackson Pollock. I've put links to all the different artists and the places that he mentions. So if you want to learn more, you have a place to start. You might just learn as much as I did. And if after listening to the podcast, you're interested in buying the book, you can go directly to the Sven Dali Press website to purchase the book online. The link will be in the transcript notes. I'm also excited to say that we will be giving away a signed copy of the book to an Arte Anglais podcast listener. All you need to do is follow Arte Anglais on Instagram and NoFNArt on Instagram or Facebook and tag two of your friends. I'll put more information on this little competition when I post the podcast episode on Instagram, so keep an eye out for it. Eli was really generous for giving me his time today, so I want to say thank you for our interview and for absolutely making my day. So without further ado, let's meet Eli, and we'll catch up at the end of the interview. Thank you so much for joining us today. Before we get started, what I'd love for you to do is just explain who you are and why you wrote the book. Sure. I've always been interested in art. I worked in the music industry for 23 years, so I've always been around creative people and the creative process has always interested me. Um, I don't really see myself as a creative myself. But um, what happens behind the scenes is something that I was kind of fascinated with, whether it was how a record was made in a studio or how a video was made by a video director or or an editor um, or a painting or or a sculpture. The the book was kind of a complete accident and it just kind of happened uh, organically. So was it something that you'd been planning for a while or something that almost just happened overnight? I've I've never had a desire to write a book. I, I never had, and this was a pure accident, really, um, and I suppose maybe a bit out of necessity as well. I took my uh, niece to Tate Modern one Sunday. She's just recently moved to London, 
And the idea was that I would show her and kind of boast about the, the fantastic art that London has. She's been around the world and to different places and different museums. And I wanted to show her, you know, one, the building is an amazing building. Um, and, and the art is always new and exciting and there's something different there every time you go. But the day we went, the Sunday we went, it was a little bit disappointing in the sense that the main turbine hall was felt like being at the beach. There was huge crowds and it was noisy and people were rolling down the carpet. There's a decline into the turbine hall. And at the end of the turbine hall, there were these adult-sized swings and above them, this giant disco glitter ball. So it really didn't have the kind of museum, um, reverent, respectful kind of feel to it. You know, it certainly wasn't this quiet place to reflect on on a Sunday afternoon. And as she was walking around, you know, looking at the swings and stuff, I read the description and it was to see what, what the exhibition was about. And it was an installation by three Dutch artists. So we went into the next room, which happened to be the conceptual art wing, just purely by accident. That was the next logical place to go. And likewise in there, there was a few strange, um, you know, blank canvases and a couple of other sort of odd looking things, which didn't really inspire me so to cut a long story short when we left the the taste as we were talking my niece actually said to me we were joking about you know what we saw you know was it art and that kind of stuff and um a few days later she she was on instagram and she sent me a few images and one of the images was actually somebody that had been to the tate modern a few weeks previous and dropped her scarf as she was walking from room to room and about two rooms later, she realized she, she was missing her scarf. And when she went back, there was a bunch of people standing around her scarf, thinking it was part of an art exhibition. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so she, she actually said to me, you know, you should write a book. About all your experiences at the Tate. Yeah, about what we saw and kind of whether, whether it was art, that it was more, you know, was it a joke and, you know, how can people take it serious and, having a scarf on a floor or another thing she sent me was um, an art student had dropped a packet of pasta onto their kitchen floor and photographed it and the title they put on it was something like um, this is my ex this is my um, this, this will be for my final exam so I guess what you're saying is that your trip to the Tate Modern made you question what makes something art and why is it like this and why are people reacting the way they are and the book is really you exploring this idea so my, my next step so i actually started writing and uh, i basically only had enough for a leaflet about four pages and i thought to myself well you know this isn't a book so um I decided to, um, so I spoke to the room guy. This was the one thing that kind of interested me, the room guy in the conceptual art room. And I said to her, particularly about the blank canvas, there was um, three blank canvases together. And I was looking at them and, you know, I don't see how somebody could spend half an hour standing looking at a blank canvas. But, but I read the description, the wall description next to it, and that was really, really intriguing and really thought-provoking. So I decided to ask the room guide, you know, who, who wrote this fantastic description. And she stunned me when she said it was a team of curators. 
And I said, oh, wow, my impression was that it was, would be the artist because this is their work and it's how they're communicating, you know, not only the work, but also the title and the, the kind of the bare description that you get to kind of as a lead into, you know, give us some clues a little bit about what the work is about. So I thought to myself, you know, if you, if you start that as an artist in your bedroom and you make it on the high street or with a gallery or a dealer and then you make it to museum level, which not many people do, that's the pinnacle of any artist's career, that you'd be more and more involved in kind of every aspect of your work and how it's presented to the public. So I then sent an email to one of the curators at the Tate Modern that afternoon and she came back to me and she and that stunned me even further because she said, oh, yes, we um, we at the Tate Modern have this policy of trying to engage people who, who aren't necessarily interested in art more, you know, bring, bring them in and, and interest them in art. So our team of curators, effectively, she was kind of saying that we're salespeople trying mm. to get more numbers through the doors, you know. So do you think that means that what they're trying to do is market the artwork so that it fits with how they want to present it rather than what the artist interprets their piece as? I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head. I mean, I mean, if I could say kind of two other things. Um, I, then, I then contacted Charles Saatchi uh, through his, his book publisher and um, because I'd read about Andy Warhol. Um, and Andy Warhol, I, actually, sorry, I, I, if I go back, when I first came to London, I went to uh, Tate Britain. So Tate Modern wasn't uh, open at the time. Mm. And I, I used to collect postcards when I first came to London, and I came across a postcard from, um, from the Tate. And I'd written on the back of the postcard a quote from Andy Warhol, and it said, anything you can get away with. And I then went to the library, and I looked up... Um, Read, read more about Andy Warhol and I realised that he worked in advertising before he got into making a, a living as an artist and I thought to myself well Charles Saatchi ran Saatchi and Saatchi advertising agency uh, with his brother and now and left that business and became um, a, an art gallerist he discovered Damien Hirst and Tracy Emin and Mark Chapman and all these guys you know the the YBAs, and because advertising is heavily, you know, driven by marketing principles, he basically broke those guys as artists. And you know, a, a shark, a shark in a tank is a shark in a tank, whatever way you look at it. Mm. But, but the fact that it was presented in a particular way and given a fantastic title, and in Saatchi's gallery, and it was free um, to go and see it. Um, it engaged a lot of people. So you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the Tate Modern are kind of doing what Saatchi was doing back in, in the, the late 80s and early 90s in his Boundary Road Gallery in Swiss Cottage um, that the Tate are doing now in um, on, on the South Bank. Mm. I think, to me, the book really highlighted that good art now is not just about how good the art or the artist is, but rather it's about the marketing and and how how good the writing about it is or how good it's marketed in the yeah, world. Absolutely. And, and I think that's really interesting having spoken to Seb Duke, another artist who I spoke to in Canada, mm. who talks a lot about 
it's not about the art itself. It's about how you market it. It's about how you push what you're doing and, and how you appeal to people. Mm. Um, yeah. And I think that's really an interesting way of looking at, at art because in many ways art can be anything and art can be, you know, in a, it can be in a museum or a, an art gallery like the Tate or, you know, it can be something on the side of a wall. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, these, these, these are so different and such different contexts. Um, after you went to the Tate Modern with your niece, um, have you been, do you go back often or? Well, I mean, I go occasionally. I mean, it's, it's the other side of town for me and, and London is, is quite spoiled for choice anyway. So, you know, we've got lots of other, you know, local galleries and museums to go to. There's two local galleries near where I live. And I've noticed because the sort of the explosion of street art, you know, graffiti art in the last mm. five to ten years, there's a gallery in almost every corner, you know. Um, yeah. And that seems to go in cycles. I've lived in this area for a long time, and there there used to be a, um, a very good gallery, two good galleries on Portobello Road, and they disappeared about 10 years ago, probably even longer, actually. Mm. Um, and again, you know, now now, the, now there's, you know, more galleries again, but selling different work, different type, type of work because of the whole sort of graffiti scene. You know? mm. Yeah, so, it's interesting that um, how... The graffiti and the uh, street art scene has evolved over the years. Mm. Um, I recently went to Berlin and went to Urban Nation Gallery, and it's a gallery of street artists. I don't know. Have you been before? No, I've I've lived in Berlin, but but before. Mm. So it's a relatively new uh, gallery, mm. and it has a lot of artists coming in, and they do um, a period of time there, and they display different artist's work and it's really interesting seeing how art goes from being on the streets to now being in a curated gallery yeah yeah um you know and and street art is something that i've always struggled with in terms of it's something that really interests me um quite a lot but i always feel like how can i how can i thank the artist how can i mm. give something back to the artist for the amazing artwork that they do Mm. And I think I guess this is one of those ways that uh, they can be paid for what they do, or they can get the exposure. Yeah. But anyway, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's. I mean, just on that point, that you know, that street art has been commercialized. Um, I think if you go back to when I lived in New York, you know, all the subways were tagged with graffiti. I don't think those guys were doing it for money. Mm. I think it was a question of, it's a, a, I think it's quite tribal. You know, they were mm. kind of marking their, their brand and each of these guys have their own set of tags. Um, and that's just kind of what they did, whether it was vandalism or whether it was to provoke police or anti-establishment. But again, that's kind of fundamental to art, you know, and, and I think it comes from the same strain as Duchamp. Mm. Um, when he, you know, I mean, and I think, and it's exactly the same thing today. You know, Marcel, people still miss the point about Marcel Duchamp. He was a fantastic artist, you know, sculpture, painting. He could kind of do anything. 
but his whole point of the urinal, which is kind of what he's known for, and every art book you see of Marcel Duchamp that's sold has the urinal on the cover rather than one of his other pieces. People, you know, he, 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 he did that to provoke the establishment and to provoke the people who, are, who I'm seeing now are, you know, the, he was provoking the curators, essentially, mm. by, because he was anti-establishment, because he didn't like the fact that um, how they were kind of, you know, being, being too hands-on with his work, you know? Mm. And, and, you know, what, why was it rejected, you know, at the time? You know, it was a different time. But um, yeah, I think it's 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 a question. I mean, a lot of people kind of get tired of talking about Mar. Oh yeah, the urinal Marcel Duchamp, but mm-hmm. it's still in galleries. I think there's kind of like nine reproductions of it around the world, and people will still stand for kind of twenty minutes, sort of deliberating and umming and aahing, and completely missing the point. You know, I mean, it really was just an artistic statement that he was making by basically saying, you know, think. Mm. think for yourself you know make up your own mind and this for me is the most important part about the book is that very often it's a series of open-ended questions or statements which have been written by famous artists where you're trying to make the reader think and I think it's really important especially when you're learning a language to be able to think about what you're listening to or what you're seeing and to be able to form an opinion about it so the book really gives the the readers space to think and to wonder and to to understand what's happening so what i'm really interested in knowing is what is your favorite quote from the book and why my favorite quote um i think there's two um the first one would be edgar dega art is not what you see what you make others see and I think for me that's the sort of that's the magic and allure of art because you know I I can't do what Edgar Edgar Dega does and he was unique you know if if you kind of take Beethoven if you're not interested in Beethoven and you and you listen to something you 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 can certainly kind of most people only will appreciate that there's something fantastic about it and there is something fantastic about certain artists, and they do make you, you know, they make you question, or you, you know, something will be painted or produced in a particular way that makes you kind of wonder uh, in a different way, and you know, makes you dream or takes takes you kind of to a different place or or that sort of thing. Mm. Um, the sec the second one I would say is Jackson Pollock, and his one was my painting does not come from the easel. And two reasons there was he painted on the floor mostly, but it's really sort of the underlying meaning that's more poignant here. You know what I mean? Mm. Like he was painting from his soul. Yeah. Because again, a lot of people say, oh, but that's just dripping. And But there's something about some of his work. I mean, and I think you have to see it. If you see it in magazines or, or art books, it has one um, resonance. But if you ever see it in the flesh, there's one in particular where um, you can almost see and feel the movement of the sort of um, of the animals, you know. 
and I th- and I think that this is where the kind of the description comes in. So if you know nothing about art, then you're forty to kind of stand in front of a Jackson Pollock, you know, huge mm-hmm. canvas, and the title says something about, um, you know, animals, you know, running across our um, an open prairie or something, and you then go back and look at it, you kind of go, oh wow, I can I can actually, even even though he hasn't drawn a, a representation of animals, it's completely sort of abstract. When you do look at it, you kind of get a sense of movement and 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 almost kind of see the you know what he's talking about. He's almost placed a little seed in your head about what it should mean. Absolutely, and I think that's 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 what makes art fantastic is that mm. seed is planted, and it'll mm. be different for you, Tara. It'll be different for me. It'll be different for someone else. We all get something different from it, and we can sit down and talk about it over a coffee afterwards. And and you can say what you saw and, and what it did for you, and I can do the same. And and to me, that's the essence. And I think that was Duchamp's point as well, that the conversation that you have afterwards is the art. It's interesting. You talk really, um, you talk a lot about art and what it means. And and I'm interested to know, are you an artist yourself, or would you classify yourself as an artist? No, I've worked with creative people, as as I said, in the music industry. You know, commissioning you know designers and developing music album concepts and stuff and the visual was always as important as the music you know how Mm. you package the music so i was fortunate enough to work with some very good graphic designers and to be able to kind of sit and give them a brief of what you wanted and to say and to then actually kind of have the audacity to say to these you know fantastic professionals that no that's not it (laughs) or you know that's not the color scheme or that's not what I'm after, that kind of thing. But at the same time, kind of giving them a lot of freedom. At the mm. same time, I, I always started on that basis of saying, these are my ideas. This is what we want to construe. Listen to the music. And then, you know, I, I want you, because you, I'm hiring you for your skills and I, I'm aware of what you can do in your, your portfolio. Just, you know, free reign. I guess that's what being an artist is about, though, too, is it's that open conversation. It's the this is what I want, this is what I need you to give me, and then constant interpretation and thinking about how you can make it better and all those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. You just put something in my head there, actually. I mean, most, most artists work, tend to work by themselves, whereas and, and musicians probably do as well. And I think musicians have the kind of benefit of like usually working with producers when they go into a studio or somebody from the record company will come along. And more often than not, whether it's Prince or, you know, Michael Jackson or whoever, they will listen to other kind of professional people and they'll say, oh, that sounds a bit, you know, why don't you change this or, you know, speed it up a little bit or or, or that kind of stuff. Whereas an artist doesn't tend to kind of get that um, info. Mm. And maybe if they had, unless you have a very good gallerist who's also you know, quite technically minded or or been an artist themselves and you've got that kind of trust in them where they could come to your studio as you're finishing something and say, not finish the painting for you, but just kind of give some input. I think that could be invaluable, you know. Mm. For me, I think you really touch on the idea that in order to have an opinion about art or to be part of the art world, you don't necessarily have to be an artist yourself. You can appreciate art and 
you can have an opinion about art. And so that brings me to my next question about who is your favourite artist and why? I think, again, I'll pick two. I think one, take one from the present day and one from the past. And the, the one from the past would have to be Michelangelo. And I would say purely, and unfortunately, I've not, I've not actually seen these in the flesh, but the Sistine Chapel and the Pieta. And I just think that, you know, lying on your back, painting something you don't want to paint, and the result where people, you know, hundreds of years later flock in droves, you know, day after day after day, and mm. um, to see, you know, and, you know, look, look up at this, you know, amazing work. I mean, it's been reproduced in books and videos and TV programs, and it just looks absolutely incredible. And then, and then, secondly, is the is the Pieta, the fact that he carved that from you know one large block of granite, you know, mm-hmm. folds in the and the clothing and the oh. expression on the faces and the size of it, you know, it's, you yeah. know, I mean that's you know not many people are born century after century that have that skill, that patience, that determination, that vision, you know. Mm. They reckon he kind of, you know, when he saw that block of granite, he could actually see the piece before he kind of carved it. And it's just, and when you think of the tools, you know, I mean, when you think of the technology, say, and what's available to us today, I mean, he he just had kind of, you know, ha- hammers, you know, very very basic tools to 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 work with, you know. I know it's pretty, it's amazing, isn't it? Mm, incredible, incredible. And my, my my modern day choice, and I, it's probably an obvious one, and, and maybe over talk, but I would say Banksy. Mm. And I think I think because I've got so much, I think because Duchamp made such a huge impact a hundred years ago in the nineteen hundreds. I believe Banksy is now kind of being regarded as a kind of our modern day Duchamp, and I think he's extremely clever. He takes huge huge risks. And he gets everybody talking, which again goes feeds the whole accessibility because everybody was talking about um, the shredder in in Sotheby's. Every, I mean, everybody. It's in all the newspapers. I mean, his hotel in um, in Bethlehem, you know, is a functioning hotel. <laughs> you know, it's in it, it. It's got you know the worst view in the world. I mean, most people stay in nice hotels because of the view and the service and everything else, and this goes completely contrary to that. Yet people kind of flock to go see that as well, you know. So his sort of, you know, he is doing exactly what art is is for. You know, it's not pretty, it's not safe, it's it it's in your face. You can't you can't ignore it, you know. And and you everybody will have an opinion on it, and they can say, well, it's graffiti. It's not for me. I don't like it, you know. But you know what? You know it, and you you you've heard about it, and you know who the guy is. And of course, the other fantastic thing is the fact that he doesn't do interviews. And um, and basically, we don't know what he what he looks like. Do you think we'll ever find out who Banksy is? Um, I know some people in the art industry know who he is or claim to know who he is, which mm. which, is, which of course is another thing. I mean, from my knowledge, he has a criminal record before he became famous because he was. We know he's from Bristol. If you've ever seen Exit Through the Gift Shop, he, he's in that. He speaks on film, although his his voice is. Is thwarted and, and you don't see his face, but he looks about six foot four. So there's a lot you can kind of learn from that. Now, if he has a criminal record, then the police in um, 
in Bristol will have a record of him on file, his mugshot, his fingerprints, that sort of stuff. So I think, you know, he's been protected in a certain way. When the, um, when the recent one at the Venice Biennale was, um, was when he posted a video on his Instagram account, a lot of people say, well, that was him. I, I don't think that was him putting his work out because that was a smaller man and kind of similar to what he did in, in New York or around Central Park. He got someone else to sell, you know, original Banksy's as, you know, one Sunday afternoon, some kind of 50, 60 year old man. And people thought they were buying just kind of cheap copies when they were actually original Banksy's, you know. Mm. And that's just his thing, you know. It adds to the mystique of it. It's mm. done on the street. I think, I think again, hilarious what he did in, um, in Venice, you know, to call, to call the piece Venice in oil and to show the huge tanker, you know, obviously, you know, the, the double meaning that he has is, is fantastic, you know, oil painting and the way the fact that tourism and these huge um, cruise ships are destroying Venice, you know, mm. and then on the other hand, he's saying, I'm one of the most successful artists in the world. The Venice Biennale is supposed mm. to be about, you know, showing off. He uh, certainly uh, knows um, how to make people uh, talk, doesn't he? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I do. I uh, one of the things that I like to do when I go looking for street art is to see if I can find some of the Banksies. And there's one in Melbourne, which mm. it's tiny. You would you would not even know it was there if you didn't know it was there. Yeah, yeah. So. The, the funny thing about the book, uh, Tara, is um, I use the Banksy sort of quote on the back of the book, and I'm amazed that a lot of people have missed it. And when I was um, you know, when I was looking for quotes by famous artists and I wanted to do something current and I wanted to, to you know, so I use Grayson Perry and I use Warhol and other people. But um, I came across one of his pieces from San Francisco, which caused a lot of controversy at the time. And basically what it was, was he just said his graffiti saying, I know where to draw the line. And he had a Banksy wrapped um, at the end of it, you know, mm. as his emblem. And, and then he just threw kind of a squiggle of a line underneath it. So I just took the squiggle, exactly what it was, and reproduced it on the back of the book as his quote, because he's not going to give me a quote for a book. He's not going to give, give anybody a quote. You know, he will on his own stuff. Mm. And it's funny that, as you said, people go searching for his stuff and know it really well. I'm amazed that when if pe people would see that on the back of the book, that they didn't question what it was. Mm. Actually, I remember seeing that and thinking that's that quote about drawing the line. Yeah, you did? Yeah, I couldn't remember exactly what it was, but I knew yeah. it was about drawing a line. Yeah, excellent. excellent. Well, I'm glad you got it. I'm glad, you got it. I'm glad I understood. Um, yes, it's very uh, – I, I just like the, the way that he makes you question everything. It's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, finally, I'm going to ask you one more question. Sure. Um, and it's about the very last quote that you put in the book. And I think it's the most powerful quote in the whole book. And mm. I think it's the most important thing when it comes to art. And it's without people, it's not art. It's just stuff in a room. Uh, yeah. yeah. Can you tell me why you finished with this quote and, and what it means to you? Um, well, I mean, the book, the book kind of, um, the book, in the way I laid it out was uh, to sort of create a mirror effect um, 
where on the one hand, you know, I I, I, I praise art, I praise art, and I take the piss out of it at the same time. <laughs> but, but I, but I'm, and especially conceptual art. So I mean, Jeff Koons, um, you know, you you have to respect Jeff Koons for what he's done. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of criticism, and you know, the jury is kind of still out on him as it is on Damien Hirst, you know. But mm. I've got huge respect for them. But I think all art. Um, there's two sides, you know, you, 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 you criticize and you praise. And I think you have to kind of be brave enough to speak and to show about both sides. So although the book starts off in a in sort of um, in a critical way, um, I'm a fan of art and I encourage I encourage people to see all sorts of art. And it, and it really is just about you know, questioning, you know, what is, what isn't. Don't just because somebody, a curator or or an art critic or an art specialist tells you something is fantastic. You know, I mm. think, I think you should make up your own mind. And I think I, I just, I thought that that was a very powerful thing that, um, you know, if, if you make fantastic art in your studio and it's never displayed, we, we miss out on that, you know? Mm. And if you put, where if you put it into like a gallery setting, I mean, that's the, that's the format. If you want to go see art, you go to a gallery or a museum. Um, so if there's no people, then you know it's just it it, it is just stuff, isn't it? You know, it's um, absolutely. Whereas I think, as you say, art is there to provoke and to make us think. And yeah, and if if there's nobody to provoke, it it doesn't do its job. You know, mm. so even if it's made, if it's if it's a very personal thing for the artists themselves, you know, it's 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 about something an experience they've had or whatever the important thing is that um it's shared with people people get to see it you know people mm. check it out and it does it, it creates um stirs an emotion or it gets them thinking or talking or questioning or, or doing something so so yeah i mean it's interesting you pick that out a, a bunch of people have, have kind of looked at that mm. well, I, and again i think it goes back to what i was saying and I, I don't mean to keep banging on about duchamp but I think he was kind of saying the same thing that, and we, and it's the same with, with with Banksy today. If we weren't talking about it, if, if he was still making the work and nobody was interested in it, it just kind of went unnoticed. It's just a kind of another image. Mm. Whereas the interesting work needs people, needs visitors, needs the public to go and see it, and to and and, and you know to go into that room and. Um, and experience it. Mm. And obviously all different types of art are going to appeal to different people. So that's what's so good about art is there's so many different ways that you can provoke people. There's so many different materials and methods that you can use. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think the one positive um, about conceptual art is that, you know, and I, and I give Damien Hurst full credit for this. He has brought so many people into the, into the art world that would never be interested in art. Mm. Purely because, you know, when he first arrived on the scene with, with the cow's head in particular and the shark, you know, the shark ended up in the Sun newspaper and the cow's head, when I went to see it, had these kids, you know, five, six, seven-year-old kids running around it at speed. And the faster they ran around, the crazier the flies and maggots got inside the tank, you know. 
And um, so it was kind of this interactive thing. And so before that, you know, you had to be of, from a certain kind of class to go to go to a museum or go to the opera. Whereas, um, you know, he kind of kicked down that door. And, you know, and, and lots of people have kind of fallen on the back of it. And he's, it, it's now more accessible to the masses, you know. And whether you like it or dislike it, you know, even for that reason alone of him making it more accessible, I think we have to congratulate him. And I think he deserves all the money he's made from that. Absolutely. He's one of the richest artists in in the world. I think he's um, second to Jeff Koons, yeah. Second to Jeff Koons. Yeah. And he he's a prime example of somebody who knows how to market and to oh, yeah. provoke yeah. people. And Absolutely. And that for that, I think that is just a gift in itself. Yeah, yeah. He's, that's that's something you're born with. He's he is a born marketing genius. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, even when you go back to his kind of early interviews when he was a student, a college student, um, you could tell, you know, he had a knack and a flair for publicity. Mm. He didn't get any training, you know. Um, he was on camera and he was able to put across his ideas and he knew he was getting under people's skin and, yeah. and you know took that risk and it, and it worked to his benefit you know? mm. and actually usually a sign when you're re- when you're being rejected to, to begin with you know that you're onto something new yeah that you're you're, you're getting people talking i think that's yeah. The, yeah. the thing actually i do have one more question you've made me realize i have one more question yeah the title of the book, There Is No F in Art. Yes. Where does that come from? Um, it's funny. I had I just had a notion in my head about two years ago. I, I get a lot of ideas when I'm cycling on my bike. And I was cycling around the neighborhood. And it's just something that kind of popped into my head. Why and where, I, I have no idea where it came from. And it just kind of made me laugh. And I just thought that... Um, I love the idea of children when they embarrass their parents in public. You know, they'll come up and they'll say something, you know, that they shouldn't say, you know. Mm. And I just thought, you know, the, the, the word the word fart is a kind of a funny word in itself. Mm. Especially when you kind of hear kids use it. So it was just kind of a childlike thing. It was never designed as a title for a book. And it was only when I was kind of halfway through the book, I, I wasn't even thinking of a title because I never thought the book would actually get made. I stopped mm. writing it so many times, and it just kind of felt natural to kind of use it um, because the book is kind of irreverent. And um, also, I spoke to a couple of art students, and they said to me that um, the fine art department at college was usually abbreviated to F Art, mm. and they wondered whether the professors actually noticed what it said. Because to them as students, of course, it said F-A-R-T. But to the professors, it obviously said, you know, it was short for abbreviated to fine art. There's no fine art. Yeah. To an Australian, actually, this sounds even funnier because it's saying there's no effing art. To me, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, that was actually going to be my follow-up book. Um, (laughs) this, 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 This swear word. Well, I, I didn't actually design this, um, you know, this this wasn't meant as a swear word. It was meant really as, as F and art. 
Mm. And if you look at the cover, um, F and Art are in fine print, which kind of relates to kind of, you know, fine art. Mm. So I guess, I don't know, maybe maybe the title should have been in a different font or um, a bit more expressive. But it's certainly, yes. got people, it's certainly got people talking. I know a bunch of people think, and and I think, the, and actually I think it's, sorry to interrupt her, I think it's also kind of a happy accident that happens, mm. that people do get different meanings from the title, as we do from from painting and, and, and other art forms. Mm. Well, to me it's brilliant because generally when I do a reading activity with somebody, we'll look at the title and mm. we'll, we'll try to interpret or we'll try to predict what the book might be about. Yeah. So for me, there is so many opportunities to talk about how do you interpret this title and, yeah, it's it's very clever without you even probably realising how clever it is. Yeah, yeah. Cool. That's good to hear. That's yeah. Good. And well, then the last – sorry, yeah. go. Yeah. No, go I was just going to say the last question that I had was why did you choose yellow as the book cover? cover? Did, yeah, good question. I um, Every time I go into central London, um, I always see Selfridges shopping bags. Now, they're usually very big, but they're very, very bright, distinctive yellow. Mm. And I guess from my own, when I did art in, in high school, um, I knew the book was going to be small and I wanted it to stand out. So when I was working with the designer and I insisted that we have Selfridges yellow mm. so that it would kind of sing off a shelf because, it, because it's self-published and I'm in competition with all the other established publishers, I wanted mine to be seen. Um, I think it works. <laughs> Yeah, great. I'm, I'm also, yellow is classified as a happy colour, so I always feel really happy when I pick up this book. All right, excellent. That's good to hear. That's so good. good. Hear. And yes, it does stand out. Cool. cool. Yeah, that that was the reason for you know for it. You know, when you make something, you want people to see it, and mm. um, so yeah, it was specifically for that. And and actually, the colour of the book was kind of more important than it. I, I could have made the font and the text a lot bigger. Which mm. would then kind of reduce the amount of yellow you could see. So it was, I was actually more interested in the negative space of the yellow rather than the title and the um, and the, uh, the, the 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 author's name at the bottom. Mm, absolutely, I think the the simplicity and the color is what makes it so um, appealing to me, mm. in particular, as somebody who appreciates art and graphics and things like that. Excellent. It's one of the first things I noticed. So. So, I think you should be congratulated for that thank choice. Thank you very much. I take that. <laughs> do you does this do you sell this book at the Tate? Um, I tell you what, actually, I did something naughty. Um, I contacted um, when before the book was printed. I had the the sleeve, and I sent it to the book buyer at the Tate Modern. <clears throat> excuse me. Mm. He buys for the Tate Modern and seven other concessions, other galleries, and stuff. And he said he was quite interested uh, in, you know, he, he was interested in the, the, the title and the quotes on the back of the book, but they never, but they never stopped it. And I was just wondering whether it was because I um, wasn't very flattering to them in the in the image I used about comparing the taste to a, a fun fair with the museum attached. <laughs> that mm. image. And um, so what I what I did was. Um, the last time I went to the Tate Modern, um, St. Martin's art students were doing a, um, they were given a room in the Tate Modern to show some of their work. 
and one of the uh, one of the groups were doing this. Um, the, the the name of their exhibition was um, was called um, sneak sneaking food without being seen. Okay. Mm. Um, so that was part of the whole thing. So I contacted them and I asked them if they would be willing to sneak my book into the Tate Modern Bookshop without being seen. And we and we secretly filmed the results. And what happened? So, <laughs> so I went I went down on the day and right enough, um, two of the students were quite interested in doing it. So the three of us went down, and one of them had a camera. And the bookshop, the main bookshop in the town, I don't know, has about a glass wall, glass sidewall, which is which backs onto the turbine hall. Mm. So I went in, and the guy followed behind with um, with the camera over my shoulder so he was just filming my hands so i placed four copies down on the on the book table and he filmed that and we left and then one of the girls went in and she bought a paintbrush and then she went and bought the book and she took it to the till so the i this this so this, this is kind of what i what i was interested in seeing was the reaction and um the barcode scanned because you know um it's an international barcode but it wasn't on their internal system. So she kept scanning it, and, um, and then she called her colleague over. So there was like mass confusion at the till. And of course, the girl is standing there saying, you know, well, I want to buy the book, you know. <laughs> and she was secretly filming the, uh, or recording the audio on her phone, her mobile phone in her pocket. Mm. And um, so anyway, we, um, they ended up selling her the book and, you know, they wrote the name of the title on the, on the till receipts, you know, just in case you want to bring it back. And the idea was I was going to, you know, stick it on the internet, but I decided not to, you know, it was just kind of a fun thing to do on the day and we left it at that. So, yeah. Oh, well, we'll keep it in this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and they'll find out. I think that that is just the best story because it's exactly what you're trying to do in the book. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. it's also, it's a bit Banksy as well. I mean, he did it before at, H- at HMV with mm. Paris Hilton's um, album, if you remember. Yes, you, yeah, yeah. Remember that? Yeah. So re- re- reverse shoplifting. And, and that's how I pictured to the students. I said, listen, we're not stealing anything. It's just reverse shoplifting. You know, I'm donating books to a museum. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. yeah. It's perfect. It's very Banksy. Yeah, yeah. I think we better end it there before we talk all day. But thank you so much for everything you said. It was absolutely fantastic, and I feel like I learned so much. You're welcome. Brilliant. I had an excellent time talking to you. I could talk to you all day. Brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, have a nice day and yeah, enjoy you your too. company. We'll speak soon. Thanks, Bye. All the best. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Well done for making it all the way to the end of the interview. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you learned lots. Remember to follow us on Instagram and subscribe to the podcast. And to have a chance to win the signed copy of There's No F in Art, make sure you come follow us on Instagram. I'll see you next time for an episode all about Australia. I'll catch you next time.